And would you now turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we'll read verses 30 through 37 as our text for this morning's message. Mark 9, if you're visiting, we are, a, we are going through a series of sermons through the Gospel of Mark. We come to verse 30 of chapter 9. Let's quiet our hearts and hear the word of God. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, that they will, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one, one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on your word. We pray, Father, that it would uh, penetrate our souls, give us ears to hear, so that, Lord, that word may... Uh, uh, bear great fruit in us, that it would grow and uh, be used of you, not only that we may love you, but also love our neighbors. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing now upon your word preached, for Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. James uses the phrase, the mirror of the word. It's interesting to think about the word of God as a mirror. As we get older and we wake up in the morning and go into our bathrooms and look at the mirror, it can get more and more unsettling. Uh, We don't after a while, start recognizing who, who that is anymore. That looks like my dad. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and we, you know, uh, don't recognize what we're seeing. And yet that mirror doesn't lie. It shows us the full, unadulterated truth of what we look like. And James tells us that the word of God is like a mirror. And when we look at that mirror, we, I think, can often come back saying, recognizing that I'm, I'm not as holy as I thought. I'm not as mature as I thought I was. The Word exposes us spiritually. And the disciples had to deal with that in this passage we're looking at. The disciples had to deal with that as they were uh, 
walking with the word incarnate, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Jesus had just healed a demon-possessed boy. We saw that last week. And the disciples were unable to cast out that demon. And Jesus said, this one can only be cast out by prayer. Showing how the disciples had failed in something so important and, and so basic. And now in this passage, we read that they're arguing with one another about who's the greatest, having clearly an inflated view of themselves and of their own spiritual condition. Well, we don't want only to see how Jesus exposes who the disciples are and their lack and their need, but also we need to see ourselves as we open the Word of God together. We need, we need to see ourselves as God sees us, as we really are, and to evaluate ourselves according to God's definitions, not our own or not man's definitions. Who are the truly great in the kingdom of God? Who are the truly great in the kingdom of God? Well, we see uh, in this passage that the, the disciples most certainly fall short. Uh, we see the things that they really lacked. And uh, one of the things that they lacked was understanding. We, at the very uh, beginning of this passage, they went out from there and passed through Galilee and Jesus did not want anyone to know because he was teaching his disciples. So that's, that's very important. Um, the first great need that Jesus sees is to minister to his disciples who would later be his apostles and ambassadors spreading the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was Jesus' intention. That was Jesus going to be sending them out. And so here, he doesn't want this huge crowd to be gathering around him. He needs this time to teach the disciples. And clearly what Jesus wants to do is drive home the reality of the purpose for which he came into this world. The Son of Man will be delivered up, will be killed, and will rise again. This isn't the first time that Jesus is saying this. In chapter 8, uh, verse 31, uh, Jesus says the same thing. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And at that point, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. We can't have a suffering, dead Savior, Master, Leader. And then, again, in chapter 9, after the Mount of Transfiguration, they were on their way down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one 
what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And again, so Jesus is explaining to them, telling them, the Son of Man must die, must suffer many things, must die, and then he will rise again. And now, again, in 9, chapter 9, Jesus, verse 30 and 31, telling them again, the Son of Man must suffer, be delivered into the hands of sinful man, be killed, and will rise again. They needed to grasp this. They needed to understand what was going to happen. And also to grasp this understanding that it was the preordained purpose of God, that Jesus would be delivered. That's important. It's an important word. That is what the Greek says. Uh, some, some translations say betrayed, uh, but uh, that misses, I think, an important, important point that Jesus is making. The Son of Man is going to be delivered, and who's going to be delivering him? Well, we might say, well, Judas did. Judas was the one who betrayed him and handed him over, but actually delivered by the Father. Not just betrayed by Jesus, but delivered into the, ha- into the hands of enemies by the Father. And that's important, because what Jesus is pointing out is, I'm not just some helpless victim that, that gets caught up in circumstances of hate. Rather... I have come to do the will of my Father. And I know exactly what that will of my Father is. That the Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of sinful men and would be killed and would rise again. Peter later understood this. (laughs) He later got this after, after being confronted with the resurrected Christ. Then Things everything started to click in Peter's mind. Oh, now I get it. It's amazing what a resurrection will do. (laughs) And Peter, in Acts chapter 2, says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Peter got it. He, he, He got the message. This... Jesus was delivered by the plan, the foreknowledge, according to that definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus is saying the Son of Man will be delivered. In Romans 8, verse 32, we read Paul saying, He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. Just that we understand this. This is what Jesus is seeking to drive home to the disciples. That this is not, that the Son of Man, see, the disciples were, were, they didn't get it because they were thinking if the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinful man and is killed, we've lost. We've lost. And Jesus is saying, no. This is the purpose of God. This is why I came into this world. There's always this double-edged thing where you have wicked men. Peter makes that point. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. You have the wicked men involved. You have Judas involved and held accountable. And yet, 
Jesus was delivered up by God himself. What kept Jesus on the cross? You could say the nails, yeah, the nails held him there. My sins held him there, yes, we could say all of that. But the Father held him there. We need to understand that as well. It was the Father's good pleasure to kill him. It's important for us to understand. Mark wants us to see that reality. That Jesus, and Jesus wants the disciples to see that reality. That he is marching in harmony with the preordained purposes of God. As he, is, as he is traveling to Jerusalem, he is marching in harmony with God's purposes. This is no accident. And verse 32 tells us, and, and understand this, because of God's love. We can, we can think how harsh it is that the Father would deliver up the Son and like Bishop Spahn say that it is some uh, cosmic child abuse. <laughs> this, is, this is God's love. For us and for his son. But the disciples didn't understand. You see, and, and we need to you know, give a little bit of, of break to the disciples. They, they are living before the cross at this point. They, the, the crucifixion hasn't happened yet. And, and they were struggling so much to understand what it was that Jesus was saying, but it, 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 it was deeper than this. They, they didn't, and we've looked at this already before in the other passages where Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer. They didn't quite understand how the Son of Man of Daniel 7, where we read about the Son of Man, would come in glory and all the nations would bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord. That's the, that's the Son of Man they wanted. That's the Son of Man they, they liked, that. But they couldn't reconcile that with the Isaiah 53 suffering servant who was despised and rejected by man. They, they were just simply not able. They didn't have the categories to put that together. Now, you and I are, are privileged that we live on this side of the cross. And we have the writings of uh, we have the Gospels here before us. We have the writings of Paul to help explain a lot of stuff that we probably wouldn't un understand otherwise without uh, God having inspired Paul to, to clarify some things. But uh, so, so on this side of the cross, we can see how those two things come together. The Daniel 7, Son of Man, and the Isaiah 53, Suffering servant, how they come together in one. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that there was no other way in which the Son of Man could be our Savior. That God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you understand? The disciples didn't get it yet. 
But we are privileged to know and to, to grasp that great foreordained plan of God. But do you grasp it? Do you get that? That is the most important thing you'll, you'll ever need to grasp and understand in this life is that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners and that He accomplished that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The disciples didn't get it. But understand, congregation, we are never to grow beyond that. (laughs) That God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that the Son of Man would suffer and be delivered into the hands of wicked men. And that he would die and that he would rise again. We must never grow beyond that. We must never so-called mature beyond that wonderful, basic, glorious truth. That we glory in nothing, as Paul says, but the cross of Jesus Christ. I, I, I wonder sometimes, you know, and I listen to sermons and I hear reports about churches where the gospel isn't proclaimed. And it's like, what do they think? Do they think that they've gotten beyond that? That that's of the very basics of Christianity, but now they're mature and beyond that and they don't need to talk about that anymore? Again, we need the gospel every day, brothers and sisters. As long as we live in this life, we need to hear the message and believe and and cling to that glorious truth that the Son of Man was delivered into the hands of wicked men, was nailed to the cross, and the third day he rose again. We need to hear and never, ever graduate beyond that. We don't ever graduate beyond Calvary. (laughs) Must never, can never do that. That is our glory. The cross is our glory. The empty cross is our praise. Well, the disciples didn't get it yet. They will get it, thankfully. Uh, After the resurrection, they got it. And then then they were used mightily uh, for the cause of the spread of the gospel. But here, they're still not getting it. And uh, so we see that they really lacked understanding. They also lacked courage because uh, verse 32, it also tells us not only did they not understand, but they were afraid to ask him. Uh, Why were they afraid to ask Jesus? Was Jesus unapproachable? Well, clearly that's not the case. Were they embarrassed? Yeah, probably. (laughs) They were probably embarrassed. Well, we keep hearing Jesus telling us he's going to be delivered, but we still don't get it. You know, and they probably felt somewhat embarrassed that, uh, that they were so hard-hearted and, and, and such. Uh, but I think there might be something a little more here, that they didn't want to hear that their Lord would suffer, because what then would be the implications for them? What would be the implications for them, I mean, they've left, they've left everything. They left family. They left their fishing nets. They left their, their businesses. They left everything to follow Jesus. What would it mean if then this Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful men and was killed? What would be the implications for them? You see, I think they, they understood, at least to some level, that Jesus' words were a summons to them 
to follow him, and that following him meant even unto death. And of course now we know that uh, all of the apostles, except for John, uh, were martyred <laughs> for their faith. They were afraid of what were the implications? That the servant is no greater than their master. They, they, got, they got that. They understood that. And they didn't want a master who would die because that might mean they'd have to go the same route. So I think they, they lacked courage. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him take up his cross and follow me. And they're afraid then of the implications of the costliness of following Jesus. Well, that is still the case for us, isn't it? Jesus' words, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me, are for us, too. I mean, where would you be? Would you give your life for Jesus? If, if you were taken by some ISIS soldier and uh, he put his sword to your neck and said, renounce Jesus, what would you do? What would you do? That's current, by the way. <laughs> That's current. They're, they're doing it and have done it. We've probably seen pictures. So that, it's happening. And, they, and they're doing that, that very thing. They're, do, they're taking Christians and saying, renounce Christianity, renounce the name of Jesus. That's what they're saying. What would you do? How would you respond to that? And we're living in a day, brothers and sisters, where following Jesus is not popular. There was a time where, you know, that was, you, you would gain capital by being a Christian and by being a member of a church. Today, you lose capital by being a Christian and being a member of a church in today's world. You're a hate monger. You're bigoted. And we are in, in opposition to the world and its direction and its ways. Will you follow Jesus? Will you count the cost? Do you get the implications? The pastor's job, among other things, but I think I've said this to you before, one of the important things is to prepare people to die well. <laughs> to prepare people to die well. The disciples, I think at this point, they lacked understanding, they lacked courage. Uh, they also lacked humility. <laughs> Because as they're walking, they're, they're, they're arguing with one another. They're, they're self-absorbed, arguing with who would be the greatest. Uh, Jesus asked, what, what were you discussing on the way? And they didn't want to tell him. They were, here they were embarrassed, I think. They, they didn't want to tell him what they were arguing about. Picture this. Jesus just healed this demon-possessed boy, and then he instructs them about how he is going to be humbled, delivered into the hands of sinful men, and killed. And they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. 
They were engaged in sinful self-promotion, crass selfishness, behaving, as Paul would say, like immature men. Now, they, again, later, these are going to be the, the apostles. They're going to learn the lesson. But right here, we're seeing where they're at. And uh, it's a sad place. Their values here are determined and shaped by the world. Thankfully, that's going to change. But here, it is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the, of the you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. That's worldly. And they needed to get, what do, what do they have that they have not received? Instead, they were selfish, puffed up. Who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? You know, Jesus in Matthew 12 says, by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, Jesus here isn't denying what we profess, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's not what Jesus is saying. So what is he saying? I think Jesus' point is that those who are truly justified, that will be evidenced by the words that come out of their mouth. That that will be the evidence of what is a reality in their hearts. That language is important. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. Language is important. Our words can betray us. <laughs> they can betray who we are. By their fruits, you will know them. In Colossians 3, Paul says, put away anger and wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. Paul there is dealing all, all with these mouth sins, <laughs> sins that can come out of our mouths. Uh, and, and, you know, that's important for us to see our words. James, of course, makes the same point. The point is, here were men, followers of Jesus, disciples whose words were betraying what was in their hearts. And they were lacking. Well, Jesus, in verse 35 and following, corrects them. Um, and these are important for us to hear. What, is, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? And Jesus' point is greatness is not measured in status, but in service. It's not status, but service. And he, and he illustrates this by taking a child in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. There's, I think, two ways to understand this. One way is that uh, the way to greatness is by devoting ourselves to the weakest and the lowliest. Uh, and by the way, I don't believe that's, gonna, that's the central point that Jesus is making. But this is one way that we can uh, uh, take this and understand this. That is, um, that, that the, the, the path to greatness is by devoting ourselves to the weakest, to the lowliest, to those who can't repay. Uh, so a little child, 
The greatness in God's eyes is to care for these weak little children. To say, how can I help you? How can I minister to you? Uh, now, I don't deny that that is, is true, and I think that is true, but I think that falls under something greater than that. And that is that the way to greatness is to be like a little child. It's to be like the little child. Having, having really no interest in power, prestige, <coughs> honor. Only those who are like little children are fit to act in his name and represent him and his father. Humility. Humility. The principal mark of a servant of God is humility. Exercising humble, lowly service. Calvin says, He is truly humble who regards it sufficient to be reckoned as one of the members of Christ and desires nothing but that the head alone have the preeminence. So a truly humble one is one who, who is, is satisfied. It's, he's, he, he finds it sufficient to be in Christ Jesus, to be a member of the body of Christ. Beyond that, he wants Christ to have the preeminence. That's it. That Christ has all the glory, not himself or herself. How can a proud heart, think about it, how can a proud heart represent Jesus who says, come unto me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. See, that it's incongruous. It doesn't fit. Jesus, we're told, laid aside all of the glory of his majesty and how can we be united to him who are seeking our own greatness? See, it's just it's incongruous. It's, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow. The kingdom of God turns the values of this world upside down. So Jesus came to the disciples in the upper room wrapped a towel around his waist and washed their feet. And he tells them, this is, this is what you need to do. That's greatness. That's greatness. The last will be first. And the first will be last. Brothers and sisters, are you a great disciple? Lord, it's not by your name or reputation in this world. You know, I, I just in closing, I know I need to close. <laughs> just the other day, I was, I, I was putting my notes together for this sermon, and I came to this portion, okay, I, you know, this is, this is what Christ is saying, this is, it, it, it's, it's, greatness is in service. I left my notes, I left my desk, I went and I opened my iPad, I looked at uh, Facebook, and I saw 
that one of my fellow board members of Westminster Seminary was speaking to the, the students at their, uh, uh, their chapel. And you know what I right away thought is, why haven't I ever been invited to go speak at their chapels? <laughs> you know, right away it was about me. It is like, this just shows the sinfulness of my own heart. Here I am just digging in the word of God, and Jesus is saying greatness is humility, and then I'm all of a sudden concerned because I haven't been chosen to do something. It's like, oh, for crying out loud. You know, we are constantly battling our own sinful desires. Uh, it's, it's just the, you know, it's reality, and we need to somehow get it into our being and into, into our hearts and into our spines. That greatness isn't that. It's serving one another. Greatness is when Diana Manning and Vicky and Sarah are teaching little children the truths of the gospel, the truths of God's word. That's greatness. It's just humble service to the Lord. Are you a great disciple? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know our own hearts and that mirror of your word reflects back to us our own weaknesses and our own failures. Lord, forgive us. Forgive our pride. Forgive our lack of humility. Forgive our lack of understanding. And Lord, cause us to grow, we pray. We thank you, Lord, that Christ came to save sinners and weak people like us. Give us then a vision, O Lord, for serving Christ and serving others, not for our namesake, but only that Christ may have the preeminence. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.